Today's Bible reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, and reading from the New International Version. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. When our daughter graduated from high school, um, she and her mother took a mother-daughter trip to Paris as as sort of a gift uh, for for graduating. We were just happy. And so they went to Paris. And of course, among the things you do in Paris, you you sightseeing. And one of the places they, of course, ended up was the Louvre. Wonderful place. Overwhelming at times is what I was told. I've never been there, but that's what the report was. Um, Many sculptures are there. Many paintings are there. Things that the world looks upon as masterpieces. Um, adorn the halls and the walls. And as they approached, as my wife and daughter approached one section in the museum, they saw quite a large crowd gathered. And it turned out they had assembled by uh, the Mona Lisa. You know, after all, it is considered a masterpiece, and so quite a crowd was there. Um, But what Patricia told me was when she arrived and saw that crowd and saw the Mona Lisa, it was quite underwhelming. Partly, I think, because the Mona Lisa has been made larger than life. That this, it's this grand, amazing uh, painting. Uh, partly, probably, because there's this sort of mystery about who is the subject of the painting. And in part, because it's da Vinci. And so we we made this thing, this grand spectacle, when in fact it is actually quite a small portrait hanging on the wall. But this large crowd huddled around it. She was reflecting on that sort of underwhelming feeling and, and, and then turned around, I think it was, went around the corner from, from the Mona Lisa, and there it was. Not very many people, but... Uh, a portrait ten times the size of the Mona Lisa. Very few people around. And it was Paolo Veronese's um, The Wedding at Cana. I think my remote is having its issues again this morning, so uh, I may need to... There you go. The the Wedding at Cana. Uh, It's, of course, inspired by John chapter 2. Uh, where Jesus turns the water into wine, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a feast, it's a party, it's a celebration. Uh, the red arrow on the screen for you to look at is because there's two people in front of the portrait. So those are two people's heads. So I just wanted to give you scale. This is huge. This is a monster portrait. And, but interestingly enough, not that many people really gathered around it. And so I would ask you, which is the masterpiece? When it comes to art, it's very subjective. What one person thinks is beautiful or meaningful is very different for another person. There's an old English saying that goes, uh, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. 
I myself gravitate to the wedding at Cana, probably inspired by my faith. But like I said, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Or in the eyes of the artist who produced the work. We may subjectively analyze something. In other words, we may judge it by our own personal opinions, our own tastes, our own feelings. But the artist behind the work often sees something we cannot. And as we consider, consider today's um, brief text in Ephesians chapter 2 and elsewhere, we discover that there is no greater artist than God himself. Psalm 19 begins with words that, dis- that say, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. In other words, it is masterpiece, evidence in the skies above, but also on the earth below, for you were created in the image of God. Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You are created in the image of God. Therefore, you are a masterpiece made to reflect the artist, as it were. Psalm 139 is another place where we, dis, where we hear the description of God's amazing artistry. David writing, saying, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. You are a masterpiece created in the image of God. And as our passage in Ephesians 2 states, you are a purposeful masterpiece. That is to say, you are created wonderfully and have a purpose to fulfill. This is how God sees you, views you, values you, loves you, as a masterpiece with a purpose. You're not a masterpiece because the will of the world has said so subjectively, but because the will of God has ordained it objectively. There is no greater artist than the creator of the universe. But what does that mean, especially in the context of Ephesians chapter 2? Let's take a closer look. To this point in Paul's letter, it's a short letter, and we're jumping into the middle of something larger, so we need a bit of the context, a bit of the background. He has so far proclaimed uh, the great blessings that we have in Christ He tells us God chose us in him. He adopted us into his family. He lavished on us his grace and wisdom. He's made known to our hearts what was once a mystery so that, as chapter 1 verse 10 states, we might have unity in all things. We see the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As chapter 2 opens up, it reminds us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. 
We chose the way of the world, and it led to death and separation from God. We deserve wrath, but because of his great love for us, God made us alive in Christ, for it is by grace you have been saved. And he showered upon us his grace. We were once enemies, but his desire was to bring unity and peace, to restore to former glory that which had been marred by sin. There was a purpose to this masterpiece that we are, and it's framed by chapter 1, verse 10, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. And chapter 2, verse 15, where it says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. And verse 17 as well, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Unity in all things in heaven and on earth under Christ and peace and unity as the family of God. And in the middle of that comes verses 8 to 10 of our chapter 2 here. Now, I confess there's, a, there's always an inherent danger when it comes to preaching um, to, to only look at a couple of verses. Uh, sometimes there's a tendency, un, unintentionally fueled by sermons or devotionals that, that we, we, we enjoy and appreciate, to just take a couple of verses and want to build an entire theology on just one or two verses. Now, it's not to say that there isn't much here in verses 8 to 10. There's a lot. It's rich. It's deep. These are verses that are loved and cherished. They say many great things. But taken in context, both the chapter and the whole letter so far, maybe we might see these verses a little differently than we might normally would. I mean, often they're shared to and studied to specifically understand salvation, and certainly that is there. Or we read them to try and figure out what is meant when it says that God chose in advance for us to do good works. Is it, is it that he chose the good works or he chose us to do the good works? Do we have free will or not? Is it a choice? We, we, we reflect on things like that when we read uh, just a couple of verses like this. Now, to be clear, eternal life is a gift of God's grace through faith alone, lest anyone should boast. That is clear. But again, maybe, just maybe, Paul speaks of it here, not in isolation so that you forget the rest of the stuff around it, as if the whole purpose of just saying that is just so you know how to receive eternal life, but to see it in the wider context of chapter 2, where we see how God rescues us from being slaves to sin and death and shows us the new way of life in Christ. We move from being enemies of God and one another, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, to living in unity and peace as the family of God, verses 11 to 22. And here in the middle of chapter 2, we land. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. For we are God's handiwork, his workmanship, his, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So if we think of the context, for unity to happen, 
then we need to see, as this, these few verses describe, we need to see one another as God sees us. For healing of all sorts to happen, we need to see one another as God sees us. For peace to happen as a way of life for all, we need to see one another as God sees us. His desire is not simply to uh, grant you his grace so that you might have eternal life privately and sort of hide it and keep it all to yourselves, but rather for you, the masterpiece of God himself, to experience what that means lived out in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. See, too often we, we're focused, we've been sort of hyper taught to focus on the individual aspect of salvation or of faith that we neglect to remember when we come to faith we are adopted into a bigger family i've shared the illustration before uh, in comparing my family with patricia's family Um, i grew up mom dad two brothers all the rest are in europe knew none of them and then, I, and then I married her, and then the family just never stopped. <laughs> She's got her adoptive family, her biological family, and they just keep their huge amounts of people. Um, when, we are, when we come to faith, we go from sort of this us into this beautiful big thing called the family of God, made up of people all over the world, made up of people who have also been drawn by his spirit into this family. This life we live is not just Jesus and me. Perhaps it's better if we then say we are God's masterpiece, not just you so that you don't misunderstand God's purposes. Because I think the individualism that becomes such an emphasis actually robs us of the fullness of our faith. It robs us of of the joy and the strength and the hope that we so desperately crave and need in this world that is provided and experienced best in community with the family of God. And so we need to sort of break the habit of always seeing it as doing life alone. Remember last week I alluded to that as well. We, we, we aren't created to do life alone. And the only way that we experience life truly as it was meant to be, as God's masterpieces, is to learn how it is lived out in community. It's far more important for us than we realize to to get this point. Not just because doing life alone leaves us lacking, but because we are each uniquely and wonderfully created to be part of the community of faith, part of the family of God, and that community is what God uses to transform the world. This means we learn and strive to do life together. Even when life with others is difficult. I mean, let's face it, sometimes we are difficult. <laughs> you know, but, but, but thanks be to God for his great love for all of us and his great love that we can have for all of us. When we learn to do life as a unified community, we are on our way to fulfilling God's purpose. So, if we're going to, to, to think that way, in the context, unity in all things, making peace uh, and, and the two becoming one, as, as the rest of chapter 2 says, living it out in the family of God. If we're going to do life in community, transform the world as a community, then we just need to understand a couple things 
And that's why we land on this verse, these verses today. For we are God's masterpiece, each one of us, and all together as a whole. Let me go back to the opening illustration about the masterpieces, you know, whether, whether the Mona Lisa, the wedding at Cana, or some other masterpiece. How do, we know, how do we know and come to believe that it is true? How do we know something is a masterpiece? Well, we won't know it is a masterpiece unless we actually can see it on display. So if each one of us is a masterpiece of God, and the church as a whole is God's masterpiece, then the world needs to see it on display in all its fullness and goodness and celebration. Let me put it to you this way. Let me, I was thinking of an illustration, and I was, um, I was remembering our time on the Sunshine Coast. Um, every summer, about four or 500 uh, vintage car enthusiasts converge upon the Sunshine Coast uh, for a weekend of what's called the Sleepy Hollow Rod Run. Sleepy Hollow is a little area on the Sunshine Coast that they camp at, but four or 500 people bring their vintage cars out. Now, yes, there is the show and shine, and those are everywhere, but the big dance, the, the real reason most of them come up there is because they get to do a 30-kilometer drive in parade, in procession, and the whole community turns out. People line the streets with their chairs and they bring pizza or whatever it might be and, and just enjoy the cars driving by. And the car enthusiasts love the fact that they get to show off their masterpiece. I mean, after all, what good is a vintage car if you're just going to keep it in a garage or a barn covered with dust? What good is that? You, you don't take the Mona Lisa and um, tack it up on a, on, on a wall in the dingy basement to cover a hole that your teenager made. <laughs> you don't, you know, or, or, or as, as I read somewhere, you, I mean, you don't take the, the, the paper that the, the Mona Lisa or any other masterpiece painting is put on and paper your uh, birdcage with it, right? You, 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 if it's a masterpiece, you use it according to its value. And since we are a masterpiece, then we have a, a value. We need to live up to that purpose. We need to be used for what we were created and called. And here's the thing. Just like the Rod Run event that transformed that community every year while on display, when you and I live like a masterpiece, when we as the church live like God's masterpiece that he calls us, then we indeed begin to transform the world around us. When we just keep it in the garage or keep it to Sunday morning, are we really living up to what it means to be God's masterpiece? And that's the point I want to try and get, get, get across. You are a masterpiece. We are a masterpiece. We need to act like it. That's the, if, there, if you get nothing else today, that's it. Live like a masterpiece. Live like a masterpiece. Now, how do we do that? Well, by living out our purpose. What does it say? It says we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Don't see God's word as a list of, uh, or faith itself as a list of arbitrary do's and don'ts. Instead, recognize, as God knows, that we are masterpieces. He made us, and he doesn't want us to be devalued. We are given his word to see that truth, to see what um, 
adds value to the masterpiece and what might tarnish it as well. We, we want to make sure that we're not, do you see the purpose that you have? Maybe for some of us, we don't, we don't see that. We, we're not sure of it. Well, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. By the way, I believe that the thing God, I believe that the thing God prepared in advance for us to do is live a life of good works, not that there are specific works already determined. Others may argue differently, and that's fine. We can have that chat afterward as that's where you come from. But, but because, we, and we do the good works because doing them reflects the artist who created the masterpiece. It's what we were created for and called to do. We as the people of God, are called upon to represent Jesus in this world. To be on display, as it were, so the world can see. We represent him when we do those kinds of good works. The works themselves do not save us. They are not things we do to earn God's favor. We do them simply because we've understood what it means to be a child of God and live by faith. I've said this in times past, I'll repeat it again. Our purpose, is, as God, our purpose as God's people is to be Christ's redemptive presence and influence in this world. And that means we need to know about Jesus, but it's more than just knowing about Jesus. It means that we reflect him in everything we do, all the good that we might do, how we treat others. Uh, is it with love and dignity? Or disdain. Uh, how we speak to people. How we help people when we can. We can't always help people, but we can and should more often than we probably do. How we manage our time. How we take care of ourselves physically and mentally and, and all those things. The, in all of these things, we are representing Jesus. And by the way, never think that anything you do is too small or insignificant when it comes to being Christ's redemptive presence and influence. Never think that what you're doing doesn't matter. When you represent Jesus wherever you are, you are living a life of infinite value and purpose. You are doing the very thing that you were created for, even if the situation you find yourself in seems incredibly boring and mundane. You see, that's because our job is to reflect Jesus to the world. So ask yourself, who or what are you reflecting day to day? What does the world see? Here's a great way that the world can see Jesus in and through us, and it has to do with the grace spoken of here that we receive. Verse 5, in fact, says it first. We have been saved by grace. And then verse 8 adds, through faith. Uh, We've been saved by grace through faith. It's not a treasure to be kept hidden. Instead, it should be something that we we generously show others. Uh, It says it a little more clearly over in 1 Peter chapter 4. There we read that each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. 
literally could say, uh, you've been graced with grace. <laughs> As this, the Greek wording says that, we talk about gifts. The word gift can also be translated grace. Each one of you should use whatever grace you've received as faithful stewards of God's grace to serve others. That's what I want you to see there. There's no getting out of this. It's something we all must do. We're called to live grace. Why? Well, because we may, we may you know, I, pastor said we, we're a masterpiece, and we might think that we're a masterpiece and no one else is a masterpiece. Because we love the idea that, I, I love the idea I'm a masterpiece. We love that I, the, the fact that we're made in the image of God. But if that's true then, and understand this clearly, that means that everyone else around you that you meet every day is also in the image of God. Doing life together in community only works when we realize we are made in God's image and when we rec- and recognize that everyone else is too. So we need to live grace so that others may understand that they are in the image of God. What does it mean to live grace? It means to live as Jesus did. It means to live as Jesus did. Ultimately, then... To be saved by grace uh, through faith means that my life then should reflect grace. The way I live should look like a way, the way Jesus would live if he were here right now in front of you. Now, that's easy to say. It sounds really wonderful. I'll live my life the way Jesus... Well, how did he live his life? What do we, what do we grab and hold on to that helps us understand. Well, I'm just going to give you two verses, two other passages to think about um, in terms of what it means. There's a lot of verses you can look at, but I'm going to give you two. The first one is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, and it says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage or something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the way a masterpiece treats another masterpiece uh, is by making yourself a humble servant, like Christ, showing grace, reflecting Jesus, thinking of others, being humble, serving others. The other passage I want you to... to, um, grab a hold of. If you want to know what does it look like to live grace, it would be John chapter 8. I've preached it before and referred to it other times as well, and there's a ton in this, but I'm just, I'll, I'll show you what I, I want you to see in terms of living grace. This is, um, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, 
This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Like I said, there's a lot there, but the one thing that Jesus does that, that has always impressed me is, is, is such an act of lavish grace, both for the accusers and the accused. That's what I want you to see here. He shows lavish grace to both. Um, they, they bring, a, they bring a, in the woman. They make an accusation. He lowers his head, bows to the ground, starts drawing in the sands. He's not looking at him. He's keeping his head down. Okay? Then they ask him again. So he says, okay, whoever's, if you don't have any sin in your life, go ahead, cast the first stone. And then he bends down again, not looking at them, looking at the ground, writing in the ground. After a while, especially the older folks who are a lot, a lot more in tune with what, what, what life is really all about, they start walking in a way realizing uh, I've got sin until everybody is gone except for Jesus and the woman. And so he gets up again and says, woman, where are your accusers? They're, they're gone. The act of grace is in the lowering of his head. He lowers his head, gives them an out. You made an accusation. Here's your chance to, 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 here's your chance to think twice about it. And they do, and they leave. In lowering his head, he allows the woman some dignity. But he also says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus actually could have cast the first stone, couldn't he? Because he was without sin. The way to live as Jesus would live has compassion and conviction in balance, grace and truth in balance. Because while he did not condemn, he did command, go and sin no more. She received grace. The people who walked away also received grace. My friends, you and I, out of, the, out of, out of Christ's fullness, and John 1 says this, we have received grace upon grace. We need to give that away abundantly by living as Jesus would live. Now, I know this is much easier said than done, but it needs to be an effort we make because that's what it means to be a masterpiece. We reflect Jesus. We live as Jesus. We show Jesus to the world. You, I, we together are masterpiece of God. Now, 
you're probably wondering then, okay, so what's the point of all this, Pastor? That's nice. Thank you. What, what do I do with this information? Well, I think there's three things you can and need to do. And with this, we'll close, okay? The first is this. Pray that God will help you see that you are a masterpiece. I'm not convinced everyone here thinks that. I think the world sometimes beats us down so much, or even we, we beat ourselves up so much, thinking, I'm, just, I'm not worthy for God to love me so much. I'm not worthy for him to shower. It's not about your worthiness. It's, it's about his will. He, his, his will, his way in your life. He determines you're a masterpiece by his objective ordination, not because, oh, you did enough good things or you've been pleasant enough this week. Pray and ask God to help you realize. Ask him to reveal it to you. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Ask him to show you your value in his eyes. Secondly, ask God to help you see others the way he sees them. Ask him to show you how you can serve those other masterpieces you come in contact with every day. And start serving. Start living grace. Don't wait for the perfect time to come along. Don't wait until you feel like it. (laughs) Start now. Serve God by serving others at all times. If we're going to find peace and unity and be one, then it's essential that we recognize ourselves and others to be God's masterpiece. And then it's essential for us to go and live like one. That's what I want you to see this morning. That's what I want you to know. And I pray that's what you indeed will live. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you that we are your masterpiece. Honestly, we would all admit probably there are times when we may not feel like it, but your grace and forgiveness is large, and we are grateful. Help us to realize that we're a masterpiece. Help us to see others the way you see them. And give us the, the will and the way forward that we might start living grace-filled lives. And together, begin to transform the world around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.